Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and I'm back. So uh, did a live stream last night, and we're here again. Sorry if uh, it's very sporadic. You know, sometimes I'll have an episode, and then two weeks later I'll have one, or I'll have an episode, and like the next day I'll have one. So um, I kind of go off people's schedule and, and when I'm free as well. So thank you for hanging in there. Hope uh, folks who listen to this episode will find the topic uh, edifying and interesting. I I sure find it interesting. I'm looking forward to actually learning uh, what uh, my guest means by the topic he suggested. So so get a little bit of context. Um, I invited my guest uh, Jimmy Lee, and he'll tell a little bit about himself uh, and what he does in just a moment. But I had initially um, invited him on to talk about um, R.C. Sproul's criticisms of presuppositionalism and. Uh, I am hoping that we can still get him on to talk about that, but he actually suggested the specific topic that we're going to be discussing today, and that's the topic of um, the Old Testament and uh, the philosophy of evidence. And I was like, hmm, uh, that sounds interesting. Um, I don't know where you want to go with that, but I kind of, I think I might, and that actually might be super interesting and fascinating to people. And so I think uh, my guest here, Jimmy, is going to have a lot of interesting things to say on a topic that I think um, is not really addressed as much. And so... Um, hopefully this conversation will be edifying and informative and educational uh, for those who are listening. And uh, again, if you are listening in and you have a question, I'm sure uh, Jimmy will, uh, and myself as well, will be more than happy to take questions uh, from the live chat like we normally do, uh, probably towards the back end, but we'll see how things um, go. All right. Well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, Jimmy Lee, and he will share a little bit more about himself in just a moment. All right. How's it going, brother? Going good, going good. It is a joy, uh, Eli, uh, to be a guest on your show. Uh, consider it a humble opportunity, and and hopefully this conversation would um, even. Uh, what I'm hoping is the conversation would also help evidentialists to see how much, uh, even when people talk about Jesus in the New Testament, his resurrection, um, or his miracles, it, it how presuppositionalism even contribute by being aware, conscious of the Old Testament foundation or, or, or worldview. That shapes how we interpret things. Yeah, I think that's so important because, I mean, when we look, for example, as presuppositionalists uh, at the biblical model of apologetics as we see it right in the New Testament, um, they had the Old Testament. And so if if we're going to claim that there are there, uh, presuppositionalism is based upon biblical principles, that's going to have to be rooted not just in New Testament examples, but the Old Testament backdrop. So when you suggested this topic, I was like, huh, that, that actually might be a very interesting topic to explore. But before we go there, um, why don't you tell folks a little bit about who you are, what you do, maybe a little bit about your website, which by the way, I highly recommend people check it out if you like presuppositional apologetics, but you don't like the super heady stuff. This guy right here is, uh, and the people who contribute, uh, they write very clear, very well, and they're, they do very good in bringing really important topics uh, right there for the average person really looking to dig deep. So uh, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself there, Jimmy? Yeah, uh, I'm a pastor uh, out in, um, in really the, near the East LA area. Uh, I'm a English pastor for uh, the English congregation for a Chinese church. been doing that for um, probably uh, 11 years uh, mm. full time and, and a little bit more, probably 13 years maybe uh, or 14 years um, we'll, we'll part-time too. So uh, my interest of apologetics began really uh, when I first got saved. I, I think maybe a lot of us presuppositionists, we started the evidential route with uh, Josh sure. McDowell and, and just someone that really loves history, um, became presuppositional when I, when, when I was in uh, college, just discovering worldviews and, and seeing Bonson's apologetics and reading Van Til, just seeing that applied. And and uh, my passion is just to really just uh, teach theology. Uh, so, so it's more than just about um, apologetics and and even uh, theology, specifically in the area of systematic theology, that was my where my THM was uh, focused upon, um, and and then also as well with biblical theology. And here I hope to, today even just talking about how that all bring, comes together. I think that's one of the things I see the Van Til project is just the unity and the diversity of all these various theological disciplines and method and adjacent fields and how we can incorporate together in sync. Um, maybe a lot through influence of John Frame with um, what do you call perspectivalism? I actually think probably is better called dimensionalism, that so that people don't think it's relativism. Um, and the blog we I ran was a uh, uh, is um, is Veritas domain. Um, originally, it was began by my pastor. Um, 
he, he basically is doing missions in sensitive areas and and that's a um and some of the other guys are also doing missions you know things related other places so um over time i, I just am the one that usually updated the most uh from there um and yeah just the love of theology the word and apologetics and um you know one of the things i just want to begin first by saying eli is um um you know i'm even with the blog and stuff like that i'm not the guy that knows it most um i feel the other admin in the presuppositional group that nadmoon with uh, other guys um could, could know so much more in philosophy and theology and the word in um, covenant theology whatever else it is and i'm just humble just wanted to just be part of the community just that we advance the gospel and hopefully disciple guys that know more than us and move forward uh the presuppositional mm -hmm. projects excellent so that is very it's right there on the bottom of the screen thanks view hill uh, the veritasdomain.wordpress.com. One thing that I really do like about that, it's it's not just a regular old blog that has articles that cover various topics related to presuppositional apologetics. Uh, but last time I checked, there are some teaching resources, like outlines that, that have been shared on that website. So if you're interested in teaching some element of apologetics, you search that blog and there is some outlines there that you can use and teach within your own churches, your own small groups, things like that. I think that's... Um, doing a very good job in bridging a gap between kind of consuming, right? Reading an article and actually using what you're consuming. So uh, kudos for, for you guys for doing that. Um, and so I highly recommend people check that out. All right. Well, without further ado, Jimmy, um, your topic, as I said, that you suggested, which I, I definitely want to have you back on and we'll tackle um, R.C. Sproul, uh, a dear brother, and a hero, I think a hero of the faith, yes. a hero of the Reformed community, and I highly recommend his resources and even his apologetic resources, even though there is some disagreement in terms of methodology. But hopefully I could have you on where we can kind of address specifically some of his um, objections against presuppositionalism, and hopefully that'll give folks a better understanding as to how we might answer some of the popular objections. So hopefully we could have you on for that. But today we have the topic of the Old Testament and the philosophy of evidence. That that sounds weird. But, but before you kind of go and unpack that, um, why don't you take a few moments and explain to people why uh, presuppositionalists are not allergic uh, to evidence? Uh, this is a very common misconception. Why don't yes. you unpack that for us? Yeah, uh, I just want to begin first um, by saying, um, and even I know I call it philosophy of evidence. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, Van Til talks a lot, and even Greg Bonson a lot about that when we look at evidence, it's not so much sometimes the evidence, but it's evidence is never seen in a vacuum, but it's in right. the context of other previous uh, pre-commitments, including what we often call presuppositions. That is what you believe is the ultimate uh, area of, uh, or views of reality. So it is not, and I, if I could just even pull one um, quote real quick, it is sure. I, I actually think for presuppositional apologetics is we actually, and I know Eli, you've talked about this in your show and others too, and about how presupposition we actually are evidence and uh, if we could call it another way is maximalist with our evidential apologetics we see everything even the word of god we mm. acknowledge its self-evidencing status um even also the um in general uh, revelation also as well if i can just pull real quick a quote um just from um this is from greg bonson himself and this is actually from an article he called um evidential apologetics the right way by mm. dr uh greg l bonson and it was originally from um, a publication that he used to run called Penpoint, November yes. 1995, uh, volume six and um, number 11. You could probably look at it. I think the Bonson um, Covenant Media Foundation currently has this article down or it's not functional, but you can still search for it. Um, I found it on reform.org. Um, he talks about how in popular, and I'm reading now, in popular misconception today, the choice of an apologetic goal method facing a Bible-believing Christian is between arguing presuppositionally or appealing to evidence from history and nature in support of Christianity. But that is entirely wrong. So again, we're quoting from someone that often others, especially evidential, sometimes say, hey, look at Bonson. He's this hardcore guy. Maybe other uh, pre-sub guy are more open to classical method. But here himself, he's saying that that's actually wrong-headed to see this bifurcation um, between um, with that. And he goes on and says, presuppositional apologetics endorse and encourages the use of evidence, but not evidence offered in traditional manner as an appeal to the authority of unbelievers autonomous reasoning. And he goes on, um, and maybe I'll quote more later on when we talk about this method, like how do we actually ground it is actually I think we need to see all our evidence in light of our worldview and also seeing the fact that scripture says there's revelation all around us, both general and special. Mm -hmm. And even as we talk about evidential, and I do appreciate 
a lot of guys that talk about the historical aspect of Christianity, but I also yeah. think presupposition, we could actually contribute to the table, but actually stressing, um, bringing in biblical theology, stressing that's the background of the Old Testament um, that interpret what Jesus was doing. These right. miracles Jesus were doing, it's not just a prosperity gospel thing, because some people with a prosperity gospel worldview could look at it and think, oh, this is the same health and wealth and blab it and grab it. But rather, if you read it in the Old Testament, with all this description of the Messiah, there's certain things that need to be fulfilled. I think when you see specific things why Jesus does, um, and even not just only his evidence and his value uh, thing, but even where he's at, the timing, and everything else, I think it's in light of the Old Testament interpretation that we see, oh, um, Jesus Christ definitely is the Messiah. So it's an Old mm. Testament worldview um, that we bring to the table. Mm. To look at excellent. That's excellent. Um, now, I, I, it's interesting. It's it's very important uh, that you made mention of the fact that um, evidence is when um, it's not evidences for or against a position is not independent of a worldview context that we bring to the interpretation of the evidence. As Cornelius Van Til was famous for saying, uh, uh, there are no brute facts. Brute facts are mute facts. Facts do not speak. Uh, they require interpretation. Um, but um, you made a, a very important point that we think everything is evidence for God. So that, that, that's kind of actually contrary to what we typically hear from other apologetic camps. I mean, I remember, um, I don't know if you remember, I think it was a discussion with Dr. Scott Oliphant from Westminster. Uh, he had a discussion with, I think it was Kurt Jaros on, a long time ago on, um, yeah. on the Unbelievable podcast with Justin Brierley. Um, and he said that we as presuppositionalists are eminently evidentialist in the sense that we literally think everything is evidence for God, both from the miraculous to the mundane. And I think that's very, very uh, important. And that that flows from our theology, which is rooted in the scriptures. So let's jump into the main specific topic that you wanted to address. What do you mean by the Old Testament and the philosophy of evidence? Why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah, um, with that... Um is uh so i'm borrowing a little bit and i'm tinkering a little bit with van till and greg bonson um how they often talk about philosophy of facts um i narrowed it down to say philosophy of evidence just to say specifically um focusing on jesus and all the historical events that happen in the gospel and how all of it shows when the gospel um it shows that he is the messiah so that's what he used with that of course um you know even when we talk about things you can't even do i, I don't think you could really do history um, in every worldview, um, for instance, um, if you believe in certain Eastern religion, um, sure. that everything is an illusion, then history itself, the pursuit and the endeavor of study that is unintelligible and, and not meaningful. If you believe in a worldview that everything is not able to make a distinction, I'm not so much going heading towards that direction. Um, the traditional, um, with maybe a bit of irony with the, with the typical direction. Do I believe in that? But my direction is more that when we actually read the Gospels, um, when we actually read the Gospels, I actually think there's something really missing if we actually don't know the Old Testament. Um, right. and, and specifically, not just only in Old Testament in terms of, for instance, um, we kind of assume, for instance, when you read um, the Old uh, New Testament, we already know there's already one God. In fact, actually, if you look at the New Testament, there's actually less verse that mentioned about there's only one God or monotheism because the Old Testament already laid the foundation. So if you ever do a systematic theology, um, in the attribute of God that there's only uh, there's a monotheism, more of your verses will be in the Old Testament. So we kind of have that idea, um, that idea of how the Old Testament is. But I actually think sometimes we might not be as consciously fully developed uh, with orbed apologetics, especially with those engaged with Messianic prophecy or evidential apologetics, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And, and towards the end, um, hopefully we'll get into an acronym that I developed and also is on the blog of what I call evidences of various ways, not just direct prophecies, but various ways of how the Old Testament with types and shadows and timings and everything else shows Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Hmm. And, and maybe the example I would like to give is, um, is an analogy. Maybe this is part of me as a preacher. I always think of an analogy. Um, yeah, three remember, points. Every piece, every yeah. pastor's got three points. <laughs> three points. We'll yeah. be out of here before you know it. Tony, go yeah. get the offering, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also with each point, there's a proof, right? And then there's also um, right. even a picture with an analogy. Well, well before um, you get into your example, speaking of offering, if you want to support Revealed Apologetics by sending a super chat, uh, you can do that in the comments section. Be greatly appreciated. See, we did, we fit an offering, so we'll have church, uh, we'll have church right now. But go ahead. Yeah, you got to hit the application when it's hot, right? Amen. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, so what? that i think um there was a while back uh, one of my best friend got um married and um i so 
So if you guys know me, I know some of the brothers that are, that are watching the precept group. Like I rarely watch any movies. I think uh, in my church, I watch the least amount of movies in order to have my reading diet uh, of reading a lot. But okay. there's few movies I watch. I feel like I think about it for a long time. I talk to guys to the point where some of the guys like, hey, it's a week later. Like, you know, we got to like move on. There's other movies I've watched since then. And I remember watching, um, and this is going to be, some people probably think it's pathetic. Uh, so with, um, with the Marvel series with the Avengers, I watched okay. it out of order because it, it was just during the bachelor party. Like the guy was just, you know, we we're fellowshipping and, and the movie was playing. And it was, I think, the Age of Ultron or I don't remember which one, but it was out of order. And I totally missed everything until I finally watched um, the first movie. And then there was, mm. oh, wow, the first movie set the context and explained everything else. And for most of us, I think we're New Testament Christianity. We're the guys that kind of enter mm. in into the second movie of a trilogy without the first Without seeing mm. the echoes and, and, and um, right. illusions that's made, so I think for us, if there's an application, is to read the Old Testament. And what I'm actually specifically doing um, for those that know presuppositional apologetics, and I'm assuming a lot of the people in the audience does, and also including you, Eli, um, I think Van Til um, revolution of apologetics was he pointed out that even our systematic theology, the doctrines of our systematic theology, is itself an apologetics. And I'm actually going the other. Same direction, same trajectory, but I'm even going further to say our biblical theology, that is how we read the Old Testament and, and to the New Testament and the relations of New Testament to Old Testament itself is something we need to be conscious of when we talk about apologetics. And our biblical theology is an apologetics. And if I could um, even go before we, uh, I know there'll be probably breaks. Um, I'll just give one more analogy. I think um, apologetics is almost like a, a story of three little pigs. Um, okay. How we do our apologetics, when we defend the core Christianity, for instance, that Christ is the Messiah, we also have, it's 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 not alone, but it's within the vacuum of a worldview of where you put your house. It's either made out of straws or made out of bricks or some solid material. And even like um, Greg Bonson and others have pointed out, if we say Jesus Christ has resurrected, but if there's other, your worldview is everything is a chance-driven worldview, then you might say, for instance, the atheistic chance-driven worldview is like, yeah, Jesus Christ might have resurrected, but it's just one freak accident in nature because of your randomness, chaotic worldview. But if we have a biblical Old Testament worldview, you would say, no, this actually, the interpretation is, is the fulfillment of everything of ex, uh, messianic expectation. So we could, hmm. when we finally read them in the New Testament, if you know your Old Testament, you would say, we've been expecting you, Jesus, hmm. all along. Right, right. Now, that, that's funny. You said... Um you know, uh, in a chance universe, um, you know, evidence for the resurrection can be explained away by, you know, weird things happen. Um, and people think, well, that's ridiculous. You know, if we show the resurrection, that shows a high probability that the God of the Bible raised Jesus from the dead. Listen, I had a, I had a debate slash discussion with an atheist, uh, a noted atheist on YouTube, uh, Tom Jump. And in our interaction, um, he even said, I can grant um that jesus was raised from the dead <laughs> he's like but that doesn't mean christianity's true um and he suggested even that uh there may have been a god uh who created the god of the bible so there could be a god higher than than the god we were putting mm. forth now of wow. course that's uh that's fallacious because um if there is a god higher than the god we're talking about then we're not talking about the god of the bible you're critiquing a worldview that's not that's not our own. But yeah, if your worldview is based on chance, um, then anything's possible. A bare resurrection proves nothing. Um, and so I think that's why it's important to um, do apologetics from a worldview context. And of course, understanding what you said, understanding the backdrop of the Old Testament, which gives meaning to the historical event of the resurrection. So they're, they're definitely hand in hand. I want to ask you a question before you kind of continue. I remember James White said something to the effect that um, if Christians don't read the Old Testament, then the New Testament really is a closed book. But what do you think he means by that? I think it's a kind of I, I'm, I'm I don't know if you've heard him say this before, but why is why is that such an important statement uh, to unpack for for our listeners here? Yeah, I, I think there is um, one of in, in, so backing up, um, I do think the most if if someone point a gun to me right now and say, why do you believe in Christ? Um, I would say the transcendental argument. Uh, I would say, uh, but part of that is also there is a self-evidencing nature of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just only a philosophical move um, when we're talking about the the nature of um, the status of, of even what is a transcendental argument. For me, I actually think um, we're missing that in the sense that a lot of things in the New Testament happen 
um, it's I think it is an organic book in the sense that it begins growing just like a, a, a plant begins as a seed form in its simpian form in yeah. the Old Testament, but it fully blossoms in the new. And part of that is just a lot of assumptions. And it's it's really assuming you already know the Old Testament right. uh, in some ways. And I also think there's a sense where I think we lose even the power of the Old Testament or even New Testament and its evidential value of the Bible itself. When we say the Bible is self-evidencing, I think there's a sense you read the Bible, you should know the Bible is the word of God just by mm-hmm. reading it. There's a direct way. But I think it's just it's not just the simplistic cartoon version. I think it's also self-evident in the sense that when you read the old and new, the prophecies is just so amazing, so stunning, so many illusions, so many things we're missing out. And I think we're closing um, the evidences and also even the meaning and interpretation of what the New Testament is trying to say. Sure. Yeah. Excellent. Well, let's let's jump right in. Uh, continue. Uh, in what way does the Old Testament um, set the context for a philosophy of of evidence? Yeah, um, I'm going to try to do this one uh, briefly first. I think one of the things, um, uh, even before I want to go over the those acronym of evidences, the various ways, um, mm-hmm. I actually think that when you read the Old Testament very carefully, um, and this is where I do think when we read the Bible very carefully, attention to details in every industry, every field, um, always pay dividend, right? Um, whether whatever you do will work or, you know, if you're an air, um, aircraft mechanic. But I also think when you read the Bible very carefully, um, it, I actually think if you read the Old Testament very carefully and especially noticing its structure in a literary level, there's a sense I think the Old Testament actually anticipate and predicts the New Testament. There's something when you read it, um, there is, for instance, um, I don't know if you ever feel this. Um, did you ever get this before, Eli? When you first read the New Testament with the book of Matthew, um, Matthew 1 and 2, or Matthew 1 is the genealogy. Did you kind of feel there was something missing? I'm just curious. I'm just wondering. What do you mean? I remember as, some, what do you mean by something missing in the genealogy? Um, I, I guess maybe the way I always take a step, yeah, maybe uh, not missing, but there's something. Um, the question I always had was, uh, if we ever had English literature class, the teacher always says, whenever you write a, an introduction, you want to have something that's a hook that makes it where you bring someone in. And then you have a bunch of lists. And I remember when I was 15, um, when I was yeah. an atheist, and eventually reading the, through the Bible, um, when I got expelled from school over a period of three months, that's how eventually I saw the Bible was self-witnessing to me that he's real and i remember thinking this is really strange why would there be a grocery listing of names Mm. i actually think when you read the old testament there's something missing because when you read it you'll be like this is a phone book with names and i don't know but in the jewish canon of scripture um when you look at even if you open up your table content yeah uh, the last book because in our english bible it's uh, shaped by the greek translation uh correction the greek um, translation of the old testament called the septuagint um, where the order is that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in the Jewish order of things, they actually have threefold division. Um, so their scripture they call Tanakh is actually the Torah first, um, okay. the Nevi'ims, which is the prophet, and the Ketavim, which is the, the writings. Um, and in there, in the way they set things up, if you ever look at a Jewish canon, you could Google it. Um, the last book of their scripture, they actually consider the historical book of First Second Chronicles is history. And remember first chronicles you ever read that in the beginning it lists all these genealogy all the way from adam so when you read it there's a sense when you read the first and the ending of that there's no temple being built in fact i actually think every way of um the last few books it's said in such a way that it's so anticlimactic that it's asking for something more of god so when you have see a whole bunch of genealogy in first chronicles and then it ends you're thinking still where's the messiah that we've been waiting for so the structure of the new old testament itself begs for the uh, um, introduction of the New mm. Testament. And if you're interested, I could talk more about this, but that's not going to be my main point. But I just want to at least show that um, a few days ago, even David Pullman, you know, he's no fan of presuppositional apologetics. Um, he tweeted something that, or put something on Facebook that I thought was meaningful. He mentioned about how this might not be his area, but he wished there was more Old Testament um, mm. apologetics. And yeah, I, I think so many times we see Old Testament apologetics is defending maybe the killing, the the um, you know so-called genocide, genocide stuff, or yeah. all these kind of things. But I actually think there's a sense where the Old Testament itself is a robust apologetics when you see mm. that it's begging and asking for the continuity for, for the anticipation of the New Testament. So I think right. that's where to begin first, just so that um, we're not saying we're crazy, that why is it we read Old and New? Um, first, the Old does assume there will be a New Testament. Um, right. Even the last book of Malachi, um, and this is my last point, and I'll, I'll hand sure. it back to you no, again. No Malachi, the last uh, books, which is our, uh, the way our order of the books is for um, 
Protestant Bibles, Malachi ends with a prophecy about there will be a prophet that will come prepare the way for the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that fits in where there's a sense where it just ends with that. We're waiting for somebody to come. And if God has often revealed himself and also then make people write things down, like with the story of Exodus, mm-hmm. um, then how much more with the greatest revelation of all of the Savior for all our salvation right. with the New Testament. So with that yeah, as background, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, well, I know what you mean uh, when you read some of the, the Old Testament, you kind of feel like something's missing, not because it's insufficient, but because what it is promising doesn't seem to come until later on. Um, you know, the genealogies is, is kind of a funny thing. We kind of make a joke. If you want, if you're having trouble sleeping, you get a warm cup of milk, maybe some three, you know, three chocolate chip cookies right out of the oven, and then listen to an audio version of the genealogies and you fall right asleep. But actually, you, you've actually given a good context that... Um, a good introduction has a hook, but the hook must be relevant to the context of the audience so that it would be a hook for them. So that yeah. the modern Old Testament ignorant believer, genealogies isn't a hook. It's the part we skip over. But to yeah. a Jew that is immersed in the context of the Old Testament, a New Testament genealogy at the beginning of the Gospels is a hook because unlike us today, they were very much connected with family lines and the importance of that line, especially with respect to uh, issues of the Messiah and fulfilled prophecy and things like that. So I think that's an excellent way uh, to look at it, understanding the genealogy as a hook, but a lot of us don't see it as a hook because that's not our context. And that's why we need both the Old and the New Testament to understand why it's a hook. Yeah. So there's a sense in that way, I think we see the thesis of even with that genealogy is two examples why it's beneficial. Number one, you'll never understand why it's important unless you have the old. And number two, right. you miss the evidential value because for the Jews, I, I think the genealogy seems so boring unless you understand this is a big game of Wars Waldo. You're funneling down of all the Jewish, all the various tribes, who's going to be the Messiah? You're funneling down to eventually say, this is the one Jesus Christ. So that brings again of how if we're missing the Old Testament, if we're inserting some other worldview a Greco-Roman right. worldview or whatever else worldview or Stoic worldview, if we don't have an Old Testament worldview, we miss why it's significant and also the evidential power within just the first chapter of Matthew of the New Testament alone. Right. And, and I think it's appropriate um, to kind of, I like that idea of funneling because you have kind of the culmination of that funnel in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think at this point, it's appropriate to read um, Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one is a perfect uh, embodiment of that funneling finding its kind of center in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter one, uh, verses one and two says the following long ago at many times. And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And of course he goes on to talk about issues relating to the deity of Christ that he, um, has the, uh, is the exact imprint of his nature. So, uh, Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is the, the embodiment of all that the Old Testament was pointing to. And that that notion of that funnel you mentioned is found not just here, but even throughout the Gospels, where Jesus himself says that uh, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's they that speak of me. So um, we need to be able to see or, or kind of um, uh, notice uh, what the Old Testament is moving us to so that we could greatly appreciate that climax when uh, when it comes. And unfortunately, the Jews in the first century did not recognize it. Um, and instead, they crucified the Lord of glory. So excellent, excellent point with that funnel. I think that gives us a good um, vision, um, a good visual there. Uh, but go ahead if you wanted to expand on, on what you were going, what you were saying. Yeah, uh, I think right now at this uh, time that we have, um, I want to go over just the acronyms of evidences of each okay. one of just showing various ways of the Old Testament is related. Um, so so, the so acronym- your acronym is the word evidence. So each... Uh, each letter will represent some point you want to bring out. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, uh, of how the Old Testament helped interpret Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, okay, all right, go for it. Yeah, so the first one, again, the, let me say this again. The word is evidences with an S in the end. Um, the first one is event. Um, I actually think um, there's various events. Um, if we don't know our Old Testament, we can almost miss that Jesus is like the New Testament is trying to say Jesus is the Messiah. Um, right. Let's actually open up uh, maybe the... Um, Mark chapter 6, verse 34, um, okay. first, uh, Mark chapter 6. So this is probably a little bit more of a Bible study, but but right. I don't think it's just a Bible study. It's it's really how we see the marvel 
and hopefully we this will be in doxological apologetics that we marvel that Jesus Christ must be the Messiah at, mm. at the end of our session here. Oh, by the way, um, lest anyone get confused and say, well, wait a minute, this is the Bible study. Well, wait a minute. The primary apologetic of the New Testament was a demonstration from the scriptures that Jesus had to come and suffer. He was the Messiah, fulfilled the prophecy, these sorts of things. So this is apologetics. Um, it, yes. Not every apologetic encounter is with an atheist or something like that. Um, our story here that God has given us both the Old and New Testament is a story that God is telling that culminates in the coming of his son. So I think this is very relevant, not simply a, a, you know, a generic Bible study, but go for it. Yeah, uh, if I could even add to that point, um, with, with, this is not just only dealing with atheism and stuff like that. Um, I remember a few years ago uh, when I was in college, um, I was I set up a table at UCLA with our campus ministry where basically all these people of all these isms came over. And there was sometimes when the worldview, it's not just atheists, people could gang up on you, multiple people. And I remember this one time we had someone that was Jewish and there was someone that was and he brought his scripture because he was a regular um person that was like trying to stump us and there was an atheist so in those moments you don't want to get, be ganged up so i actually thought the better thing is to be wise just like paul with his apologetics tactics mm -hmm. he split the pharisees and the sadducees against each other talking mm -hmm. the resurrection so that moment i actually thought like okay um i asked the atheist could you read isaiah 53 out loud and hand him the bible and i asked him who is that man and the atheist said oh this guy is is the one that i'm reading about of course is jesus and of course the jewish guy was like wait 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 a minute that is not jesus so i was in the end i was like okay instead of everyone ganging up on you rather than you split right the two <laughs> dividing um, like conquer what, yeah dividing <laughs> are, you to, are you in the military do you have military yes, background yes military background was <laughs> in marines yes that's all right well thank you for your service man marine corps go that's awesome so look at that yeah. even apologetics how can i how can i alleviate the pressure here i'm just gonna set everyone against each other that's very yeah. uh that's very good yeah so, so and I think in the end, it's very powerful, and even for the non-believer to read the scripture and everything else with that. So, so going back on with the word, uh, with the first one of the evidence is events. Um, Mark chapter 6, verse 34, I prefer the uh, NASB version. I'll just yeah. read this real quick. Um, it says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So verse 34, Jesus obviously is compared to uh, him even alluding to these people are like sheep, and he's like mm -hmm. the shepherd. And yeah. in verse 39, there's this interesting details. Um, and again, we, we miss all these things that we don't know the Old Testament. Verse 39 says, and he, that's Jesus, command all of them to sit down the group, uh, sit down by groups on the green grass. Mm -hmm. I want to pay attention to what's going on here in context. I'll just fill this in real quick. Is Jesus going to um, basically feed thousands of people? Right. And the attention to detail of green grass and also that he looked at them like sheep without shepherd, we would miss that if we don't know the scripture. Because I actually think the word, what is going on here is this is alluding to Psalms 23. This mm. is alluding to Psalms 23 because in Psalms 23, if you remember, one of the prophecy is that he leads me besides green grass. And the Greek Septuagint translation for Psalms 23, Psalms 23 is Hebrew, Old Testament is Hebrew, but there's Greek translation of that. Just like right. today, I, I, I'm ethnically Chinese, but I cannot read Chinese. So I have to read like English American translation for like sure. Chinese um, classical military texts and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. going back on um, with that example, I think when you see this, if you don't see that, then you'll miss the echoing. It's almost like um, sometimes you see rappers when they're battle rapping, they're dropping lines of each other. But if you don't know anything about rap, then you're wondering why is everyone go, oh, whoa, did you see what <laughs> happened there? Right. It, the power uh, uh, of the rebuke and the dis, or even the power of the apologetics here is miss. So even with the Old Testament, Psalms 23, interpret this event, mm. what's going on here, that Jesus okay. is the Messiah with that such subtle detail of this event with it being green grass mm. being mentioned. And I, I, I like how you mentioned that because it's so important. Second uh, uh, Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired of God. And that includes both the major points of a text and what seems like a minor points. God uh, put those things there for us to notice and for us to consider. So I think that's a very observant of you to mention the, the green grass and drawing that analogy. Uh, well, why don't you continue? So we have E events and yeah. uh, do you have more to expand on that yeah. particular uh, v, part? Uh, uh, the second one would be V would be for verses. Um, okay. Just even the times where there's certain times where the New Testament authors or Jesus cites passages in scripture. Okay. And we might be scratching our head thinking, why did he cite that? Unless we understand the verse in context, and also as well, even um, for some, in some instance, even what the rabbinic um, traditions and how did the Jews interpret this? 
Um, and again, for V, I'm not going to go through um, a specific verse, but one of the most quoted, um, this is more of a data, just to make the point, because I'm, I'm rushing through this. Um, just the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament is actually Psalms 110. Psalms okay. 10, uh, verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. And I think if we don't understand the background or even the, the psalm in context, um, I think we could easily miss um, what it is that's going on also as well. Maybe I could give one just real quick. Is, um, sure, yeah. Uh, by, by the way, I just want to give you a heads up. Uh, there is no rush. We're at 35 mark. We're shooting for an hour. So you, you could expand on some points if you wish. Okay. Okay, yeah. So um, this is an example I'm just thinking off the top of my head is um, if you guys could turn with me to Luke 20. Okay. Um, Luke 20. Um, is the subject of, of my dissertation for when I was doing my THM on Jesus apologetics methodology. Um, I felt he was dealing with a lot of unbelief and there was a lot of argumentation going on. But in Psalms uh, 20, the correction, what I'm saying, Luke 20, verse 17, Jesus actually cites this verse that the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. It's actually a quotation from Psalms 118. Um, and the term, we would miss the significance and we would say, how is this a messianic prophecy that the stone will be rejected? Like, why do we, why do we think the stone is Messiah? Unless you know your Old Testament, mm -hmm. I actually think the stone is the title for the Messiah. By the way, the Hebrew word there is Eben. So we ever have any friends named Eben, it means precious stone. You know, it's not just any rocks. It's just precious stone. Mm -hmm. And that first time that word appears in the Bible is actually Genesis 49 where different titles of the Messiah is also mentioned about the mighty one of Israel um, mm. and the, the uh, shepherd and the stones of Israel. So I'm bringing this up as to say we so easily miss why would Jesus use those verses unless we understand the Old Testament. Mm. So that's a V with verses. Um, the Old Testament helps us understand the background of the yeah. actual verses. With that. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So we have we have uh, events. We have verses, and what do we got next? So the letter I, what, what do you got there? Yeah, the word I is for individuals, um, okay. for individuals. Um, what I mean by that is, um, I mean, uh, we could turn just real quick. Um, I didn't write down a specific verse, but like um, Deuteronomy 18 predicts that there's a prophet that will come. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just going to turn there. Um, Deuteronomy 18 talks about, let me look at the verse. Um, in verses... In verse, this is not good to do things on the fly, right? Um, <laughs> no worries. Psalms 18. You have that particular passage, which is referring, I have the outline here, is referring to the idea that the Messiah will be uh, like a, a prophet like Moses. Yeah. So, so you're Psalms. focusing on an individual here, yeah. Moses, as kind of an analogy or foreshadow of yeah. Christ. Okay. Yeah. And uh, specifically, Deuteronomy 18.15 mentioned about um the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, and notice a singular, mm -hmm. um, like me among you from your countrymen. You shall uh, listen to him. So when we look at Matthew, I think Matthew is actually trying to tell us he is, Jesus is like Moses because mm -hmm. who, he was born, um, he had to escape from an evil king. Um, you know, one was Pharaoh and one was King Herod. You know, people were killed. Jesus, you know, there was a time period where he was in Egypt, living in Egypt. There was a time period where even um, Jesus was like Moses, he preached the law. I think that's what Matthew 5, with the Beatitudes, he was yeah. explaining and expounding the law. Um, there was, I mean, there's so many um, parallel uh, with that, right? Jesus having 12 disciples. Um, there's 12 tribes that um, Moses was trying to lead. There's a theme of 40 days and 40 nights, right? Um, there's the theme in the wilderness. All those things, I think, contribute that Jesus was... Um, like Moses. So I think when we look at this individual, when it talks about even um, Deuteronomy 18, you might miss the whole part of uh, Matthew 1 and 2. Why is it focused on this individual, Jesus, unless you understand Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, that there will be one who will be a prophet. That's right. exactly like that. So that when you get to Matthew chapter 4, when he started doing the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5, correction, then you would see, oh, whoa, he's a prophet after being in the mm. mountain area, just like Moses, and then the right. parallel of all his life before, even beyond his control when he was little, was very similar. Um, there was a great killing of many kids um, that would have right. been his lifetime. Um, the king wanted to kill him, and he had to flee an evil king and all these other things. And right, and, and, and that's not to say that there were not other prophets that came after Moses. Right. Obviously, there, there was, yes. um, but you have kind of these... Um, 
snake head crushers from Genesis three fifteen. Yes. You have snake the the snake head crusher wannabes, people who God raised up, but they weren't quite the fulfillment of who would crush the head of the serpent. So um, what you're saying here is not at all inconsistent with the idea that in context, there are other people who came after Moses, but there is one who will be raised up uh, like Moses, who will be greater than Moses. And this is the, yes. the beauty of Hebrews chapter uh, chapter one, where it talks about how Jesus is more superior uh, than the angels. And of course, he's more superior than, than Moses himself. So um, again, you have these types and shadows all throughout scripture that we find in some fashion fulfilled in individuals, but in a greater, uh, in a greater fashion in the person of Jesus Christ. So um, excellent, excellent points there. So, all right. So we have um, events, E, letter V, we got verses, and then we have individuals and you just used Moses, but I'm sure we can use other individuals as well yes, if you wanted to, because there's so many individuals who foreshadow the yes. more perfect uh, work and person of Jesus Christ. Pardon. So let's move on to D. We have date. And I see the reference here of Daniel chapter nine, verse 26 through 27. You have a potential opening up of the can of the prophetic and eschatological yes. worm. Whereas <laughs> we're not going to get into that necessarily, yeah. but why don't you unpack uh, how da Daniel nine, 26 to 27 yeah. relates to your D in your acronym there. Yeah. I don't want to get into this so much because uh, you know, there's a whole, discussions of that um you know the 69 weeks and, and 70 right. but i think the part that is very clear is in daniel chapter 9 um with all the discussion about eschatology um with the second advent the first advent i think is pretty clear um yeah. no matter what perspective spectrum whether dispensational or or post mill on mill um pre-mill historic pre-mill all of those camps um it's predicting here and the 70 here is referring to with the weeks the weeks i think is seven years um, I think the timing of this, um, again, this is way beyond our time that we could have. Um, sure. But I do think it predicts um, when Christ would die down to the year. Um, right. If I could just give real quick two uh, short books or, or two books, yeah. I kind of mentioned this a little bit. is J. Warner Wallace. So this is where in our graciousness, you know, I'm going to recommend an evidentialist. Um, his latest book, Person of Interest, kind of talks about a little bit yeah. of this, about the dating and the time and, and, and all that. And also... Ooh, there's another one. The name escapes me. Um, uh, so, um, I mean, I, I forgot the name. Um, but if you okay. if you type in Daniel chapter nine on the blog, there's a review I've done of a free booklet you can have. Um, okay. Which the blog also, um, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Sure. But it's yeah. always great to also point out to other free resources out there also mm. as well. Excellent. And I and by the way, I, I highly recommend Jay Warner Wallace. I had Jay Warner Wallace on the show. We okay. we had a, a, a great conversation, a little back and forth on apologetics, but it was fine. Nothing too serious, right? Uh, but he writes very clearly. He's a very pragmatic and efficient writer. So you can learn a lot of the details of some specific evidences. And I always encourage people when you read evidential literature, um, if you seek to be consistently presuppositional, benefit from the resources that other methodologies have and make sure you contextualize that in a way where we can use it in a way that um, is consistent with our presuppositional commitment. So uh, there's still lots to be found that is very useful in uh, the writings of uh, Jay Warner Wallace and others, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I do recommend of all the guys that write evidential apologetics for a popular level, I actually think he's most conscious of methodology just mm. with using his police, police analogy. Yeah. Um, he's actually really inspired me to actually think more of, how do we use even military analogies to communicate mm -hmm. and to teach and train people yeah. like tactically and, and practically sure, yeah. with yeah. apologetics? Yeah, go Jay Warner Wallace. <laughs> He's an awesome guy. So, um, all right. So, um, so that's Daniel 9, 26 to 27. You would say that the 70 weeks of years, um, that prophecy kind of alludes to when Messiah would come and has some yeah. important time indicators that if the Messiah was to come, he most likely or most definitely should have come by that specific time. And of course, we won't get into the details, but if you calculate the 70 weeks of years and what the weeks are and all these sorts of things, it, it is right around Jesus's ministry from the time of Daniel, yes. uh, which um, you get in some really interesting things. At the end of Daniel, uh, the angel is, uh, he's told that um, to seal up the words of these of this prophecy for the time is not near. And yet when you get to the book of Revelation, do not seal the words of this prophecy up for the time is near. Uh, so you do have uh, a sense of urgency in the New Testament uh, while in the book of Dan, you have a sense of not yet, but you have the timetable that there that's working its way and culminating in the ministry of Jesus. So, uh, excellent there, Daniel, definitely controversial, 
but super interesting. Yes. All right, so, so we have environments. Uh, so let's go again. So people are following. We have uh, events. We have verses. We have individuals. We have dates. And then we have environments. So why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah, um, with environment, I'm referring specifically to geography. Um, we could just go to Isaiah chapter 9, okay. verse 1. Um, I think most of us know Isaiah 9, specifically with verse 6. That's a verse around Christmas time, you know, um, unto us, um, you know, that God has given, you know, a child, right, called all these things, mighty God and, and all of that, Prince of Peace, um, Eternal Father. Um, but right before this, so, so I do think in light of Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah 9, there is um, there is a messianic expectation um, in, in light of Isaiah 9, 6. And in Isaiah 9, 1, notice the geographical reference of where the Messiah would be. It says, there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he's treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the way of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. In verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. And of course, there's um, one of the beauty of the uh, gospel of John is to say, Jesus has these seven titles, right? Um, he's all these things. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the good shepherd, all these things. But one of them is also he's the light. Um, why is that? We would not appreciate those titles, which we'll get to in a little bit. But with Jesus being the light, if that's a messianic title, then it's actually telling us where specifically he'll be operating. So when you read the gospel, he, Jesus always, especially in the Galilee area, um, he's going back and forth between the Sea of Galilee with right. the Gentile side and back and forth. And if you don't know your Isaiah chapter 9, you would just think, oh, Jesus might have just been tired, which he was. He just went to the Gentile side. But he's doing busy ministry and fulfilling this prophecy that's very specific. Mm. And, and um, Galilee um, was really the backwater of the Roman Empire. For the Messiah to come over, this is very specific. This is almost like um, maybe people for entertainment industry would want to go to L.A. and Hollywood where I'm at, right? right? Or people with country music would go to Nashville. This is almost like a guy that's saying, and this is no way disrespectful to these states, going to uh, the Messiah would come from Montana or Iowa. Why <laughs> that specifically? It's just so specific. And also saying, going back and forth, ministering to even the Gentiles. I think right. we will miss those significance of Je Jesus' geographical movements. Can anything come out? Can anything good come out of Montana? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, blessing to those brothers that are there. But that's just an sure. example in our social elites, mm. uh, cultural elites, how they think of geography. Yeah, and you see that theme all throughout Scripture. When God does things, it's very unconventional. I mean, uh, you know, you have Esau and Jacob. Esau had the right to the blessing as being the older, but God blessed Jacob. Um, you know, uh, he tends to use that which people think is small and, and insignificant. And yet those are the things that God chooses to do. And this is, um, I don't remember who coined the phrase, but it, it's very much related to what some theologians and uh, scholars refer to the upside down kingdom principle, uh, mm, where the yeah. kingdom of God turns things upside down and does it very opposite uh, the way we would expect. Um, and so, yeah, if Jesus came to the United States, most likely probably wouldn't be, you know, hailing from some place that everyone would expect someone important to come from because that's just the way he rolls. He doesn't yeah. follow our patterns and our, and our expectations. So, um, and I think it makes the story all the more interesting yeah. because the, 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 the prideful and arrogant religious leaders of the day who knew their scriptures would say, a prophet doesn't come from Galilee, but little did they know he didn't just come from Galilee. He came from the place where the prophet said he would come from. Yeah. It's just that they, they didn't know it. The way his ministry functioned, you know, born in Bethlehem and then hailing from yeah. Nazareth and, and Galilee, uh, it's easy for someone to really miss that unless they kind yeah. of sat and listened carefully and said, yeah. hey, you know, if the Messiah was hasn't come yet, is the Messiah going to do greater things than this? what this man is doing? Uh, well, surely yeah. not. So uh, excellent. Very good. Um, all right. So we have environments. Uh, letter N, we have names, names, titles that Jesus uses. Why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah, um, so Jesus even using the titles indicate that he's the Messiah. Um, if I could just give one example um, real okay. quick. Um, in Daniel chapter seven, uh, verses 13 to 14, it actually mentioned um, about this figure that is um, not ordinary because this is a scene in heaven 
who's yeah. called one that's like the son of man. And I actually think if you pay attention very carefully, this uh, son of man cannot be an ordinary human being at all because in verses um, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, he's supposed to be ruling forever, um, where it says that God is giving him dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and every man might serve him. Um, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So, and yet at the same time, verse 13, he's called the son of man. So re right. read the son of man. I still remember um, as a young Christian seeing the son of man. I just, it was just like every one of us is a son of man, right? We're all been born to man. And I missed that. Like in places where in Luke chapter uh, five, in verse 24, when Jesus said, so you know that I am the son of man with authority to forgive sin, he goes in and heal the paralyzed man. And even, by the way, that's a great example of how when Jesus gives evidence, um, I think we need to pay attention to sometimes God records there's conversation going on mm -hmm. here. There is not done in a total vacuum. It's done within an old, old Testament worldview that no one could forgive sin except for God alone, right? right. Um, if you have that worldview, that shows that this is the Messiah. This is God becoming fully man. So that's an example where when we see the Son of Man, we could easily read our 21st century meaning into it. But we need to actually go back to the Old Testament. Right. And I know um, even seen a Jehovah Witness before when I was younger say, hey, see, he is not God because he's the son of man. And when, right. when I look at Daniel 7, uh, 13 and 14 in its original context, yes, the title is the son of man, but it's so even more divine uh, to me, its evidential value of the divinity of Christ than even the son of God at, right. at a superficial reading of that. Yeah, excellent. So, so the son of God can be understood as referring to a man and the son of man is a specific title that can only be attributed to the one who's equated with God given its Old Testament context. That's uh, yes. that's very fascinating. And it has some apologetic value. I've seen some that those points being brought up uh, in debates and discussions between uh, uh, Muslims uh, who are yeah. trying to challenge the deity of Christ by appealing to uh, the, the title Son of Man. So he's the Son of Man. He's not the Son of God. Um, so, all right, excellent. Um, all right, so we have names and titles. Uh, now we're down to the letter C. Uh, conversation, that conversation that we can miss how powerful Jesus is as Messiah. So uh, why don't you unpack letter C for us? Yeah, so the, the word, uh, I know it was long-winded, but the way you remember it is just conversation. Um, just looking at Luke 20, um, and I know I made allusions to this earlier. When Jesus um, cites um, Psalm 118, uh, when okay. Jesus cites that verse, that shows, again, some of these things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They could be overlapping. But right. when Jesus was debating with, um, so to set this up, Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, um, he's talking about the authority of Jesus. So if there's ever an opportunity in the show, I would actually like to talk about even Jesus, how he dealt with ultimate authority, and perhaps even possibility of incipient form, transcendental argumentation, verses 1 to 8. But that's another sermon another time now. But in verses 9, notice Jesus goes on the offense. And I actually think when he goes on the offense, Jesus sets up this parable, right, about the vine grower. And actually... Um, this is actually borrowing from Isaiah uh, of how Israel is kind of like the vine and, and the various, um, you know, this analogy. And then of course, in verses 17, Jesus, you know, the story is basically they're going to kill the owner's son. And the Jewish religious leader is like, no, it may it never be. This cannot happen. How could it happen? And that's when Jesus drops a bomb and said, this is in your own scripture, says verses 17, the stone which the builders rejected. So I think there's all these things where we can miss the stories. Um, and Jesus specifically, to make my argument, even for evidential uh, apologetics, that's a correction, ev evidences in a presuppositional framework right. with an Old Testament background, is when Jesus gives this parable, they know right away to pick up that this parable is talking about um, the nation rejecting Messiah with the motif mm. from Isaiah. Um, Etc. So I think when we see here, you could miss a conversation if we don't know our Old Testament. It's like the two rappers, battle rappers, rapping, and you know nothing about rap, and you're hearing these lines, everyone's laughing, and like, oh wow, but you're just like standing there, like, oh okay, um, I don't know anything about the urban scene. <laughs> so this is where we need to know the Old Testament to, to right. flourish. Um, the incredible amount of prophecies fulfilled with Jesus. Excellent, very good. Um, all right, so letter. Uh, I think we're on letter E. We're move, moving along good. This is good stuff. So we have the acronym evidences, and we are now on the letter E, and we're going to be ending uh, with S, and then we'll take a few questions and wrap things up. You're doing an excellent job, and this is super interesting, and I'm sure people will benefit from this conversation. So uh, why don't you unpack uh, E, which stands for exclusion of Jesus? Yeah. 
So I think Jesus is so powerful. If I could borrow a presuppositional motif, the, even the rejection of Jesus proves Jesus. Because we know from Isaiah 53, he's going to be killed. Psalm 118, what we've just seen earlier, to use that verse without going, you know, for the economy of time right now, even shows even the rejection of Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy mm. that when he's excluded. So I think there's a sense where the case for Jesus is so powerful, geographically, everything else. But some would say, well, what about the rejection of Jesus? And we say that even the proof is so powerful, even the rejection and exclusion of Jesus proves the Old Testament prophecies, the places like Psalms 22, right. where he's rejected, where he's suffering in Isaiah 53 and Psalms 118, um, verse 24, all of this shows that he is the Messiah. We do expect mm -hmm. him to be excluded. Yeah, excellent. Very good. And the letter S, signs, interpret these things in light of the Old Testament. So uh, signs, are you referring to what the New Testament often refers to as uh, miracles. So signs, yes, it's right. interesting, with miracles, we tend to think of miracles as a kind of a supernatural intervention, but in the Gospel of John specifically, miracles aren't called miracles, are they? They're, they're called signs, which yeah. means that they're, they're pointing to something, right? Uh, they're pointing to something that kind of is preceded by that broader context, that funnel, the funnel of the Old Testament, which culminates in this person who is engaging in the miraculous which should point back to everything that preceded. These miracles are pointing to the backdrop of the Old Testament. So uh, why don't you unpack that a little bit for us? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So if we go to Luke chapter four, this is Jesus when he was just, um, he just has uh, survived the temptation in the wilderness okay. from Satan. He goes to the synagogue and he reads in verses 18, uh, Luke chapter 4, when he was filled with the Spirit, verses 18 and 19, he actually reads Isaiah 61 about how the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach um, to the poor. He's proclaimed uh, to release the captives. Um, he's going to free the press and everything else. I actually think this is what he's saying is, I fulfilled this. And he's going to be, that. that's a controlling theme of his miracle. These are not just miracles out of nowhere. These are not right. just a bunch of um, ad hoc evidences of science. But there's a robust systematic program of what he's trying to do is to show that all these miracles is to say that he really is the Messiah. So even the mm -hmm. signs are not divorced from a worldview of the Old Testament, right. but the Old Testament, he's saying, I'm fulfilling this to the T. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's excellent. Um, I, I teach a, a middle school Bible class, and we talked about um, the signs and miracles in the Bible. Miracles are not arbitrary. God didn't just do random miracles. They always pointed to something. Even the miracles of the plagues in Egypt uh, were Yahweh mocking the gods of Egypt <laughs> uh, to show his people, right, who the true God was. So they're they're never done randomly, and they always point to uh, the broader context, the truth of the message, right? Miracles confirm the truth of the, the messages, the message that the apostles were bringing and things like that. So they always were done in a particular context that um, has as, as its backdrop the Old Testament. So excellent, excellent. So that, that, that summarizes, so we have the evidences... Um, uh, acronym that kind of give us a glimpse into the importance of the Old Testament with respect to how that should create the context for the person and work of Christ and how uh, his very person and work is evidence and confirmation of uh, what the Bible was getting at all the way from the beginning. So that is excellent. You did a great job there and hopefully that was clear enough for everyone to follow. I think I think it should be. Um, let's um, kind of round things off then and kind of see what uh, is going on in the comments. Let's see if there are a couple of questions here. We'll take just a few and then we'll we'll wrap things up. How's that sound? That's good. All right. So let's see. Uh, we're going to skip that one. That guy is always popping up in the comments. Sorry. I usually... <laughs> Okay, let's see. Oh, Slam Slam RN. Howdy. How are you doing? Slam RN is always in the chat, and I always appreciate Slam. Um, she's at everywhere, I think. In every YouTube channel, you see Slam RN uh, in the comments there. So good for you. Uh, all right, let's see here. Got, uh, I did see a question here. Do, 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 do. Oh, okay, so Jeremy McMillan asks, where in the Old Testament does it say that the Messiah will be resurrected yeah you want to speak to that um obviously we're not saying that there's a specific verse that says it in all in that specificity but there are definitely allusions that we would call messianic uh prophecies alluding to that i don't know if you want to address yeah. that 
Yeah, um, so I do think in terms of the Old Testament, to back up a little bit about where is the doctrine of the resurrection in general, I think um, the, how the Bible works is that it's almost like building a Russian spaceship or not correction, the International Space Station. If you guys remember when we were kids in the 90s, for some of us, they took a while. Like they could only bring a shuttle a little bit at a time. So that's the doctrine of progressive revelation. Um, it takes time. And of course, the most fully fleshed out with the resurrection in general, general resurrection, is Daniel chapter 12. Um, so with this, I also think while it does not use the word resurrection, I think if you read, paying attention to the, the literary form of uh, or even um, the structure, um, the New Testament often would cite uh, Psalm 16, uh, verses 9, the last verse, um, to make this argument about how is it that this is not talking about David. Verse, let me read this real quick. Verse Psalms 19, sure. uh, Psalm 16, verse 10. It says, For you not abandon my soul, soul to Sheol, nor will you under, uh, allow your holy one to undergo decay. So in places like right. in Acts 2, um, Acts 7, other places, they'll say, Hey, this is not talking about David as a reference because his body's still with us, his burial place. Mm -hmm. We know he's dead. So this must be the Messiah. I actually think the one that's most clear is actually Psalms 22. If you mm. read some progressive um, uh, Bible commentary, they actually think Psalms 22 should be two different psalms. Because one is so, the beginning of Psalms 20, this is Psalms 22 is the famous one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. Um, with verse 1. Um, because in the beginning, in verses 1 to, um, in verses 1 to 18, it's really dark. It's really dark. This is like a very depressing scene where this guy is dying, like he could count all his bones. But suddenly in verses 20 onwards, there's a sense where there's a lot of joy. In verses 22, even saying, hey, what I've done, everyone will know about it. And, and, and people will basically, all the world and the nations will celebrate. And he would, this person speaking, um, and the first person I think is the Messiah, the, all the eyes and knees and, and that. Mm -hmm. And then yet he goes on and he's somehow alive. Um, you know, he's able to pay vows in verse 25 and all this. So I think the structure of Psalms 22 shows not only the suffering Savior, but a Savior that would even be raised also as mm. well. Excellent. Very good. Um, I think uh, Jeremy has some more questions, and I think uh, we'll wrap it up with his. I don't know if there are. There's some really positive comments, so people have been in, enjoying this. Uh, Jesus, not Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus says, uh, Jimmy, this has been very helpful. Um, that's, uh, Thank awesome. Users. Yes, it has been. And hopefully people can kind of go back and listen to this and maybe check out the Bible verses that were mentioned here. So, uh, definitely, uh, excellent. Uh, so Jeremy continues here. He says, was the person that was brought up after Moses, Joshua. So he made an allusion, uh, to that prophecy that, uh, there would be a prophet raised up, um, like Moses. And so Jeremy here is suggesting, well, well wasn't that, wasn't that Joshua? Um, how would you yeah. interact with that? Yeah. Uh, this is where I, I think, um, what I would set up is probably, um, when Psalms, when Deuteronomy uh, 18 says one like Moses, one like Moses, I actually think when you compare everybody, including Joshua, um, there's some people, some of the prophets, there is an overlap. There is some parallels, but there's sure. nobody that has the amount of parallel that Jesus has, um, right. even to the point of there's a king that tries to kill him. Um, all his people of his generation, that's his age, got wiped out. Um, there's, you know, a, a woman that's trying to escape. Uh, or protect the baby, um, going to Egypt, fleeing Egypt. Um, there's even the illusion of going to the mountain for 40 days. and 40, So I think all of this all together, um, I, I think there's no one that fulfills it, not even with Joshua to that extent. Mm. Um, if you want more, in Veritas Domain, if you type in Deuteronomy 18, I think I devote three or four posts, or two or three posts of uh, documenting the parallels that is um, unparalleled, with all pun intended, that only Jesus could have fulfilled. Excellent. And so Jeremy continues here. He's got most of the questions here. I think he got, I think he's got all of them, but uh, it's all good. Nice. Um, so we mentioned Daniel 9, uh, the 70 weeks of years. So he's asking, wasn't Daniel 9 a prophecy of the destruction of the second temple in 70 CE? Um, why don't you respond to that? Yeah, so this is where um, the post-mill interpretation would be that. Um, so right now, um, this is probably one of the answers I'll say I don't know fully. Sure. Um, so there's pre-mill, post-mill. Um, on mill, sometimes people are treadmill. They're still working on it. And that's <laughs> I never heard that. I've heard pan, uh, pan, pan mill, I think so. Pan mill, yeah, that, yeah. treadmill. I've never. Heard. Yeah, I just I just made that up. <laughs> that's good. That's well played. Very good. Um, yeah, I, I think it. I think it is. Um, I think it is predicting the destruction of uh, of the temple. However, his question wasn't Daniel, as though 
it's not also talking about what you were mentioning. Uh, it is talking about what you were mentioning, and it is talking about the destruction gotcha. of the temple. So I, I think it's not an either or. I think it's a both. Uh, yeah. Both in and. Daniel chapter nine, specifically, it says um, there's a, only an amount of allotted time for even the to make the end of sin, and and, and that also. So, so I That's think right. it's not it's either or. Sacrifice. There yeah. is a soteriological dimension to that, even when there is judgment uh, of the of the second temple. Mm, excellent. All right, just a few comments here. Uh, let's see here. Matt Bell says hi, Eli. Hello, uh, Truth Defenders. Uh, Shalom, shalom, right back at Hello, you. Lewis. I still remember <laughs> and, you, uh, Truth Defender. That's awesome. And uh, Jeremy, uh, who we uh, you answered his questions. He said, "Thank you for the interaction, guys." Well, it's it's our, it's our pleasure. I'm learning here. I I love this stuff. I love kind of uh, looking at the Old Testament. It's definitely an area that I need to beef up on you know um it's very easy to read the new testament because there's so much um and i want to say this carefully there's so much practical application not that that's not the case in the old testament but oftentimes the practical application in the old testament is tucked away in these stories and events and the psalms and the proverbs so sometimes you know when you're like i want to read the bible uh, i want to make my the most of my time let me jump in the in the new testament when in fact we really need to also jump in the old testament there because that gives us a more fuller and richer understanding of the entire bible in its context so uh so Jim, I, Jimmy, I think you did an excellent job here. I definitely uh, want to have you back on to cover uh, a bunch of other topics. We could have you on a bunch of times. Um, I think you have a heart for the Lord. You're a good teacher, and uh, you explain things in ways that is easy to understand, which is uh, obviously very important from a perspective of a teacher. So um, are there any last things you'd like to say before we wrap this live stream up? Yeah, I just want to just say thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I just want to say... Um, we went through a lot. We, we've kind of done shotgun, but I also want to encourage if anyone listening to this want to even study more of right. the Old Testament. Um, I usually have a Tuesday Bible study over on WebEx and Jesus earlier. Um, Jesus A joins into, um, but not to the detriment of, you know, you serving your local church. And, right. and also there's the blog. We also answer Bible contradiction. It's a slow project I'm doing, refuting the skeptic annotated Bible um, one at a time. I go slow because uh, I'm looking at the Greek and Hebrew. And I want to be careful um, and accurate and, and devastating, hopefully. But I just want to encourage, no matter who you are, whatever, I hope we all continue to serve the Lord together and do apologetics and community. So with that, I'm thankful, Eli, you've given this platform. I'm thankful for all the brothers in the Reform Apologetics group that has also um, encouraged me and I've also learned from also as well, especially the admins. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, same here. I've learned so much from that uh, from that Facebook page as well. Um, guys, just uh, real quick, on September 22nd, I'll be having uh, Lane Tipton of Westminster Theological Seminary to come on and talk about his new book, on Cornelius Van Til and his Trinitarian theology. Um, and very much looking forward to that. Um, I don't have a specific date yet, but I will also be having uh, Eddie Dalcor, um, who is a, a Christian apologist, very sharp guy. He's going to come on and we're going to be covering the, the question, uh, is the Roman Catholic Church the true church? So uh, it's kind of a uh, an apologetic against Roman Catholicism. Obviously, uh, I love Roman Catholics, but I'm obviously not a Roman Catholic. I mean, I've got even my my tattoos. I got the the five solas of the Reformation. These little five hours. I'm a hardcore, you know, Protestant. But um, but I love uh, my Catholic friends, and I do encourage a good, fruitful interaction uh, with one another as we're called to do. First Peter three fifteen, doing it all with gentleness and respect. So, looking forward to having. Um, Edward Dalcor on um, at an unannounced date, but I'll definitely share it once I have the opportunity. Um, I think that's it off the top of my head. I probably got some more stuff going on. Somewhere in December, we're having Jeff Durbin on. Uh, I think it's December 6th, but don't quote me on that. Um, and um, I'm sure we'll have things spread throughout. Um, hopefully it is going to be informative, educational, and edifying. So um, appreciate you guys listening in. Appreciate you, Slim Jim. I like your screen name there, that's awesome. And until next time, guys, take care and God bless. Bye-bye. God bless.